bateu o Nice em plan. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Again, this is Nisim Black, a.k.a. Godsman, a.k.a. the Black Abraham Lincoln, a.k.a. Hitler's Worst Nightmare, a.k.a. Sammy Davis' cousin. I was born in Seattle to hip-hop parents. I got in trouble as a kid. I was able to make a major life turnaround. I was a Muslim in my younger years. I became a Christian in my teens, only to discover that my soul was Jewish all along. So I took my wife and my kids, and we picked up, and we moved to Israel, where I am today. This podcast, The Deal, is all about the deal. What deal? The deal with social issues, race, anti-Semitism, everything that has to do with me as an individual and us as a people and humanity. And I wanted to be able to tackle all of these issues from unique and interesting perspectives. And I'm going to interview people that may or may not share the same uh, belief as me, may or may not share the same perspective or outlook as me. But at the end of the day, discussion is important. We have to talk in order to advance ourselves as individuals and advance humanity. So with that said, my guest today is Eve Barlow. She is a Scottish-born, L.A.-based journalist whose interests may vary from music to Jewish life and culture. Her most recent notable article is a title called Wake Up America and Smell the Anti-Semitism. And this article appeared in the Tablet Magazine. First, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me. You're on the deal. Been a long time coming. You know, you're on the frontier of people that we uh, wanted to have on the show. So I really do appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Um, it's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for thank you for wanting to speak to me so much. <laughs> <laughs> do I have to? And I, I feel like you know, you know, it's my own form of like affirmative action too. I got to get enough people that speak proper English as well as people who speak messed up English like me, you know, and, uh, you know, I've got to balance it out here, you know, for sure. No, thanks for coming on. I want to ask you this first question. So you were writing about the coolest bands in the world. And now it seems like you spend most of your time, you know, speaking and writing and thinking about anti-Semitism and not the bands. What happened? What was the change? Sure. Um, I have to give credit to the amazing COVID-19 pandemic for some of that, because <laughs> um, the, there was a, there's obviously been a, a huge uh, break in in industry for the entertainment business. And with that, you know, the media industry that is attached to that aspect of life is is slowed down immensely. And so there isn't as much going on right in that space at the moment. So, you know, I, I had started to become an advocate for Jewish people before the pandemic, but I was still very, very busy with work. You know, at the beginning of the first couple of months of the pandemic, it was just really quiet and I was doing what everyone else was doing and just kind of sitting on my hands, like wondering what to do with myself. There was a period of about six months when I, I got a bit quieter about Jewish activism after it all began around... Um, the Jeremy Corbyn election in the UK. That's when I right. really decided to get a lot louder with my voice. And after he lost that election, I did take a bit of breathing space for a while because I was just exhausted. 
And I think it was about three months into the pandemic, or maybe not even as much as as long as that, but essentially after the murder of George George Floyd and the, you know, the, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the things that that were taking place at the protests in Los Angeles and some of the vandalism of of Jewish places of worship, I got myself into a bit of a heated situation immediately when um, I tweeted about how essentially vandalizing a Jewish place of worship is not the same thing as expressing disdain for capitalism in the system by smashing the windows of an urban outfitters, you know? Right. And... You know, immediately I was cancelled for saying this because of the sensitivity yes. of the of the discussion at that point in time and the the total dissipation of people between two extreme camps. Right. And the the just the complete inability for anyone to have a nuanced conversation. And because that happened, and because I had already had so much experience of losing friends, et cetera, et cetera, from my advocacy on the UK side of things, I just decided to sort of start leading a front in America because I realized that if anything, I think American Jews are even further behind than other um, diasporic Jewish communities, especially right. communities in France and the UK and, you know, but communities that have really seen, have really been faced with the fear of an inevitable institute. Well, I, I, I sort of regret saying institutionalized anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is also institutionalized in America. Right. Absolutely. They didn't have to face this kind of proposition of having an anti-Semitic leader of government or, you know, an anti-Semitic justice system in France or that kind of thing. So that's when I became more vocal again. And believe me, the second there's some bands to write about, I'm <laughs> I'm very desperate to get back to that. <laughs> but um, at the moment, this is you know, this has occupied a lot of my time. You know, what you said is true. Like, this year made everybody, you know, I mean, because listen, you're forced inside your house. I hadn't had internet in my home in maybe eight years. I had not read or seen the news probably in like 10 years, this period, like not even for the weather. I saw, I lived in Seattle. You cannot trust the weatherman. <laughs> You talk about being completely away from it and then having to go into this world of, and it's like the best, worst time to do it. Um, there's an overload of information. The whole entire world just went completely upside down and people became even more divided. And what was sort of good about that, I feel like, is it forced a person to really decide where you stand, where you stand in terms of your value systems, uh, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable by you, what type of person are you? So I feel like, it sort of to some degree, I think it's fair to say that it changed a lot of people 2020 and the way that they see the world. And it sort of puts you in a position to where you must be the you that you want to be right now in this time or else forever you will you'll be silenced. You know, you'll be canceled, as you said, you'll be unless you're the you that you, you, you know, that you know that you are. So I think that 2020 was very, very big for a lot of people. Yeah, I really agree. You know, there was a point actually right at the beginning of the pandemic when I sort of came to that realization of, I think people are really going to root 
deeply into themselves during this period of time. And when eventually the time comes to emerge back into society, people are going to have to be prepared to face those they used to know in their kind of truest essence, because a lot of people were expressing nostalgia at the beginning of the pandemic. And nostalgia is a source of comfort. You know, you go back to the records you used to listen to when you were a kid or the TV shows or the movies or whatever, so that you can feel some sense of comfort and in such a distressing, chaotic period and, and, you know, unknown period of time. And I think what happened in that was that people really traced a through line in their lives and tried to figure out truly where, where their soul comes from and who they really are. And the fact that we've been so unsocialized, but we've been so separated from all of the sensory stimuli that we're used to all the time, that there's been no distraction. There's been no outside influence from the people that we're accustomed to spending time with. And I do think that it makes sense that we're having all of these incredibly complicated conversations about identity and having all of these tribal clashes because I think people have really clinging on to however they identify as the be-all end-all for their survival right now because without our own stories and who we are there's really at the moment there's there's nothing else to go on do you know what I mean so Right. It's very true. And you know, something else about what you said about anti-Semitism, you know, since I have that that side, I also have the black side. I've always said that I cannot speak for every black person when it comes to race-related questions, right? Because I grew up in Seattle. Seattle is was very, very, they say tree-hugging, very gray. I don't see color. I'm colorblind, which is quite crazy because everything has gone on. Like Seattle and Portland, where you're more than likely to have more African-Americans say that they're not really experiencing racism. Outside of systemic racism, that's already something different. But like real deal racism or that that's an actual problem in their life. If there's two places in America where you will not be talking about it, Right. Would be in Seattle and in Portland. And they're like going, flipping out, going crazy all over the... It, it's rather interesting to see. But I can't speak for a person who grew up in New York where everything is already segregated by neighborhoods and boroughs and different things like that, or who grew up in, in Atlanta, Georgia. My wife, who's from Louisiana, she has a different experience than I had growing up in Seattle. Not to say that there's not issues everywhere, but I can't speak on behalf of everybody. I have a good friend of mine who was um, um, was actually, I don't even call him a friend, he's like an uncle to me now. He grew up during the Jim Crow era. Um, he watched his father killed by the Ku Klux Klan. He has a completely different experience. He's got a, a, a different heightened, a heightened sense of awareness uh, and smells out racism far more than I can who never had that experience, right? So I'm obviously going to have a different different approach. Do you feel like perhaps maybe the Jews that are in America who are not experiencing a blatant anti-Semitism, as you say, that there may, thing, may be things systemic and things have been and curbing that way. I'm going to be honest, like, especially in the entertainment industry, for instance, you know, you're starting to see more even black privilege and the fight to push out the Jewish influence even more, you know, in, in the wake of everything that's been going on, I guess it's probably happening in every industry, but you're starting to see things be pushed a certain way. And, you know, obviously the BLM group 
and and a lot of them coming out with anti-Semitism um, part of the campaign. Do you feel like the Jews in America, just because they haven't experienced it head on, that they're not able to have the adequate response to such a thing? Yeah, I, I feel as though I get just as you feel like you can't speak for all uh, African-American people. I also feel like I can't speak for all Jews. And I can I can say that my experience in America from a Jewish perspective over the past seven years has been quite one of imposter syndrome, really. And I, I don't feel like I connect to American Jewry at all. It's not my experience to feel like I'm in... And it's, it's interesting because... I think a lot of American Jews may be under the false impression that they're in some kind of secure majority here. And they're not, you know, American Jews are nowhere near a majority of the population in this country. And even in places where they're highly concentrated, they're still not a majority. So um, I, I think that there is a lot of complexities with American identity at large and, um, I think a lot of Jewish Americans would identify themselves as American and then maybe even Democrat before they identify themselves as Jewish, if they happen to be left-leaning. I think that this comes down to, you know, the, the story of how many, Ameri- many American Jews came to America and where they, they were asked on entry whether they wanted to sort of fit into um, religious or racial categorizations. And that a lot of Jews define themselves racially as as white or white functioning, and therefore they have assumed a lot of the um, quote unquote white guilt that is festering and existing right now as a result of conversations around systemic racism. Right. I get upset when I hear this stuff also too, like we look at what we did and all that. And I'm hearing it's coming from like Jews mouth, you know, you're part of the founding uh, fathers that I think it was um, maybe around 2%. It could even be less than 2% of even the white people that are there in America are descendants of slave owners. Right. You know, you start to look at white guilt and it becomes Comes something completely different. And then even furthermore, when you start to hear Jews saying, you know, look how unfortunate it is that, you know, what we've done to these people. And it, it really does bother me mm. a lot when I hear these type of things. But I want to ask you, so you, when you describe London, I, I want to, I, I hope I want to quote you right. You said it was a eyebrow raising place to be Jewish. Right. And anti-Semitism is very palpable, like we're talking about. And when you got to L.A., did you really feel a a big change and a big shift in that? Yeah, I felt like I'd made Aliyah when I came to L.A. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, again, it kind of speaks to the, the question that you just asked me about this false sense of living through some kind of golden Medina in America as a Jewish right. person, particularly right. in areas like Los Angeles, because you'll drive through West Hollywood and Beverly Hills and you see all of these really palatial synagogues with big Hebrew writing outside and it's very showy and everything is on display and there's menorahs and the local CVS and, you know, and I'd never seen anything like, you have to understand, I'd never seen anything like this because 
first of all, I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland, where there's a population of a few thousand Jews. We had six synagogues, one reform and five Orthodox. And by the time I left Glasgow, only two of them, I think, were still functioning. And we didn't have we didn't have a meat deli left. We had to get our meat delivered from Manchester and London. And we had one, two kosher delis, sorry. But the point being that I lived in a very minority environment and I lived in the tiny Jewish neighborhood of Glasgow, but we were not putting our Judaism on display. I was always taught to wear my Magen David underneath my shirt. I remember I had a Hard Rock Jerusalem t-shirt from an Israel trip when I was a kid and my dad wouldn't let me wear it out to, to town or anything like that. It was very much, you can be a proud Jew in your home and it's fine. You, you carry your Judaism with you always, but just don't go looking for trouble when you're out in the street. And, you know, London isn't to that extent because obviously, there there is a much larger Jewish population in London. There are lots of very visibly Jewish areas in London. However, at the time that I was I was living in London from 2007 till 2014, and during the latter period of that time was when you know there was conflict in Gaza and the the BDS movement was really building steam. And I remember even going. I was living in the East End of London, where interestingly enough was, you know, the first kind of Jewish immigrants to the UK. Many of them lived in the East End of London. And I remember going to my local branch of a huge supermarket chain in the UK called Tesco's. And all of the kosher products had been removed from the aisles because of the boycott movement. Tesco is named such after the the wife of the man who founded Tesco, whose name was Tessa Cohen. So it was, you know, it's a Jewish, it's a historically Jewish supermarket chain. And the thing that's even more mind blowing about this is that the kosher food that they were removing from the aisles was not from Israel. It was made in Kent or somewhere in the south of England. So it wasn't even successfully just one of the first instances that I really saw on the ground of how honestly stupid the BDS movement is because it's not even in with regards to what it wants to target it can't even get that right there's nothing about boycotting food products that are made in Kent that's going to help the Palestinians right right so it's clear to me that it's an anti-semitic movement but that was one of the straws that broke the camel's back that was like one of the final moments of I really feel like I have to get out of here you know in terms of eyebrow raising because it felt I mean it felt sinister right I I completely understand and it seems like everything's sort of like that way it starts out with boycott Israel this and then people's true feelings end up coming out and you start to see that it's anybody that identifies with openly Jewish or have have any type of love or support you know for, for Israel whether it's the state of Israel or whether it's you know it's the people you know I just feel like everything is so divided 
right now. And the world is becoming so divided, which is a horrible feeling because you may have friends and family, you know, as you're mentioning earlier, that, you know, friends starting to drop out and drop off, uh, you, you know, your friendship list. It's it's almost like the biggest blessing because there's that clarity. Sure. You know, I never forget, I was somewhere and I was hearing someone speak and they were talking about, I, I, I'm, unfortunately, I forgot who the rabbi was, um, but he was speaking about the, the blessing of anti-Semitism. <laughs> no, you know, because sometimes when everything is in this area of gray and it's not so clear, right? Like the, uh, the feeling of making Aliyah to L.A., you know, where it's a different world for you. You understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's very much so can make it easier for a person to relax and and sometimes when we relax, we relax too much and we forget what our mission is. We forget what our purpose is. We forget what, you know, what we're supposed to be doing while we're here in this world. And unfortunately, many of us have to have a wake up call in order for us to realize, hold on, wait, wait, wait. You know what? I, I am different and there is something special about me. And, that, and this is not even just this is something that is very, very true for the Jewish people, but it's true for in, every individual. Sometimes it's only through those hardships and going through things that are less desired you know that really help us to remind ourselves who we really are and and what we're our cap- our capabilities are so i think it's it's a huge time and as much as it's it's hard on everybody it's really like a blessing in disguise right so yeah and the point that you made about feeling a bit too comfortable honestly you know without speaking out of turn that's kind of the way i feel about a lot of american jews is that it's the assimilation has been in a way too successful because the the knowledge of who we are, where we come from, why we have a country and why we need that country seems to have become, you know, not even remotely a priority to impart between generations. And I think that's why we see such a ferocious rise in anti-Zionism among especially progressive-leaning Jewish people in America because they've centered themselves in the story of the Jewish diaspora. And I mean, I I think if you were to ask many anti-Zionists in America, do you know about the last Jews of Yemen who were exiled last year? They wouldn't know about that. And they wouldn't realize that if it weren't for Israel and the Aliyah process, then the, the, the number of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa who managed to escape oppressive anti-Semitic regimes, many of them we would never, we wouldn't know about and we wouldn't have heard about. Right. Wow. Um, but I, I think they are ignorant to that because they've lost, they've assimilated too, too much into a non-Jewish world. And I say that as somebody who who balances the importance of my Jewish identity with with what I feel to be important to me as being part of a secular community. I've always been proudly um, involved in the non-Jewish world, but I never abdicate from my Jewish identity in order to do so because I know where that leads. I know where that's led us historically. And also it's not my business to do that because I am a proud Jew. (laughs) Right. Very, very beautiful thing. So I want to ask you, much of your energy um, these days is spent fighting the good fight on social media. Um, You know, (laughs) it just is what it is. You know, today, everybody's like fighting these trollers, right? And people get on there and they're just trolling. So my question for you is like, do you ever like stop? This is not worth it. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I actually... 
I have to be honest with you, the amount of engagement that I do is very limited now. I, I'm pretty much a, you know, I, I like drop my bags off and I leave. Like I just, I just, I, I put whatever I want to go out there. And if someone is asking me a genuine thought provoking, interesting question and looks willing to engage and have a discussion, then great. I'm all for that. But trolls, I just, I just block and, and move on because I've seen it too many times. And even, I mean, and trolls can be people with elevated, massive platforms with tens of thousands of, of followers. But I see where these people's hearts or lack thereof lie and they they just want to be hateful and spiteful they don't they, they want to dehumanize me they want to create a scenario in which I abdicate from my platform that's their end game basically so and there's no there's no conversing with that person there's no dialoguing and I think that's one of the biggest tragedies of social media is that it's supposed to be this democratic information highway where we're all supposed to be able to say things and share ideas and and thoughts and what have you. But what it's actually done is created this horrific divide into tribes or echo chambers or whatever you want to call it. And there is no dialogue happening between those those chambers. And it's just, you know, I was tweeting something the other day about how the most damaging tactic that is employed right now on the internet is a bunch of trolls calling someone a racist without any (laughs) accountability, without any rationale, without any evidence. And the, um, the disproportion between what they don't have to do in order to make that claim and then the consequences that result on the person being libeled as a racist. It's just... Right. It's insane, but this has become a part of online dialogue that's just acceptable to people. And it's completely, you know, it's absurd and it it's gross. It's truly gross. <laughs> it is for sure. I tell you what, it's a waste of time. I, you know, I, I <laughs> I'm telling you what, I, I, I just had to ask you that because I feel the same way. Like people write things and some people are very genuine in their dislike of me, but other people are not. Most people are not. And even the, the ones that are very genuine, for sure you're not going to convince them because they're convinced uh, off of whatever. And then when it comes to like trollers or even people that are very, let's, let's deal with the sincere people even, right? Uh, the trollers, everybody knows that it's not real. But for people that are even sincere about it sometimes, it's sort of like nobody came to have themselves convinced otherwise. And generally, when you start arguing with somebody, it's almost like, how much are you really looking for the truth in the matter? Or or how much of it is you you really want to get your point out? Like, in other words, we're having this conversation and we're going back and forth about what we both may believe wholeheartedly. However, I, I'm, I really didn't even hear what you just said to me because you said one thing and that brought up amazing point that I wanted to be able to touch on. So, you know, you argued and you you just went for, you know, 90 seconds. But in the first 30 seconds, you said something and I've had my answer prepared since the first 30 seconds of what you just said. <laughs> it almost feels like, you know, it's so unhealthy, the dialogue itself, because we're not even getting anywhere. So do you ever feel like when you're having disputes or in the past, or you have more disputes because you said now you're just dropping bombs on them. So that's all good. 
Do you ever feel like you're getting somewhere with them? Do you feel like you've actually been able to change people's mind and open them up to uh, maybe your way of thinking? Yeah, I have actually quite a lot. I have a pretty good track record of that. Amazing. And it's really, it's hard work and it doesn't, you know, and some people kind of, they want a formula for how to make that happen and there is no formula. But it is, it's the people, you can kind of tell the people who are leaning one way, but they're kind of still on the fence they have enough humility to admit that they don't know the full picture of information and you offer them some information they've never heard before and they have that preparedness to change their perspective according to some new information so there are times when it happens sometimes it's happened in public forums so in the comment section of my instagram or on Twitter. Most of the time it happens in direct messages behind the public space. This is the other tragedy of social media. People don't feel comfortable to ask questions on social media. They don't they don't want to admit a lack of knowledge. So a lot of the time it will be someone who has, you know, slid into my DMs, as they say, and asks me questions or says, how can you advocate for this? How can you be a Zionist? And, you know, and then I ask simple questions of, oh, did you know that this is what Zionism means? That it's just plainly about uh, a a human human rights for for Jewish people, basically, who have been in exile for 3000 years. And then and then you get into it with them in a calm manner where they don't feel as though they're being watched by limitless amounts of people while they're trying to learn about something. So there are occasions when it has gleaned results and people have changed their perspective. However, that takes a certain kind of engagement. That takes a certain type of person. And one of the reasons why I started advocating is because I realized that I was in a really unique position. I was firmly embedded in the progressive world, in the arts space. I was a really respected journalist and I was followed by and in uh, in a circle with all of these you know really quote unquote cool bands and artists and musicians and people who had been used to hearing a lot of civil rights speak about many different communities be them the black and brown communities or you know queer communities or all manner of communities but I knew that those people had never really heard anything about Jewish advocacy and that it was in my experience of existing in a lot of other spaces, queer spaces, feminist spaces, my experience was that Jews were being pushed out of those spaces unless they rescinded their Zionism, and which I was never prepared to do. And because I was seeing this happen more and more, I thought, well, while I'm still around here, I need to educate people on what this is about and why it's so messed up that we're being excluded. Right. And being excluded really is being excluded from that conversation of, you know, we are also minorities and we are also uh, mistreated. And it's one of those things where um goes back to what you said earlier. It's like this whole entire idea. I have a friend. 
Shout out to Z, Chaim OG. It's my boy. And and I, I have to coin him with this phrase. I haven't heard it anywhere else, right? But he said to me a long time ago, we were having this discussion, and we were talking about Jews identifying themselves as white, right? And you and I just talked about the detrimental effects of that. And we're not talking about even just Ashkenazi jewelry. We're just talking about, okay, I identify as white. You know, that really becomes a big question now here in America and whatever, with everything that's going on. He said like this. He says, if Jews were white, why didn't Hitler just say everybody were all white? You know, why didn't he say just like, you know, we're all white. We should get along and and same thing with the Tsar and, and everybody else. Nobody said we're white, so it's okay. So I, I think that when these conversations come up, it's not a, really about skin color because the Jewish people are indigenous people, many of many different colors, many different backgrounds, even more so after being, you know, exiled and being in so many different countries that the color of the skin absolutely means nothing in terms of a Jew. But then when you look at it and you say now that, you know, we can't bring our distress and and our conversation about anti-Semitism to the table when the LGBT community can complain, the black community can complain, the brown community can complain, everybody can complain except for us. We're thrown on the on the other side when do you really want to compare history? You know what I'm saying? Like, let's be honest. I'm going to be honest. And I'm saying it as a black man. I love being black. And obviously there was, uh, you know, a horrendous history which African-Americans definitely went through. But like, come on, we going all the way back to Egypt. Let's go back 4,000 years. And I think that it's an unfair set of rules when it comes to that. Do you think that it's because we're just really bad at PR? Do you think it's really not? I want to know, like, what's, why is we can't have that conversation? You know, it's funny you say that because I've made that joke so many times that the Jewish community, particularly as regards our our friends in Israel, are really, really bad at PR. Like just shockingly bad at PR. You know, I appreciate what you say about counting, you know, 300, 400 years versus 3,000 years. But then we get into this game which people, you know, talk about the the oppression Olympics. And this is a really unfair, horrendous way to view the world is, you know, who's the most oppressed and who's the most victimized. I feel like the focus is wrong, you know, and and when when you talk about PR, I think the PR around oppression and victimhood is amazing. And it's kind of, it's like become sort of sexy in a way. And, you know, that then activism and advocacy, a lot of it comes from a place of, of victimhood and thereby vengeance. I think a lot of people are avenging their victimhood. And I I don't necessarily buy into that or think that that's going to, I understand why people are angry and why people are hurt. And I never um, seek to uh, see the world from an an experience that I, I haven't lived through because, you know, there are many forms of prejudice that I inherently don't understand because I don't experience them. But when it comes to PR, I think something that the Jewish people are struggling when what we're coming up against is that a lot of the philosophy and the theory around identity politics now has been built through the non-Jewish world in a way that actually doesn't encapsulate us at all and does not, a way in which the Jewish faith and the Jewish people can't fit into. We don't fit into critical race theory because as you pointed out, the Jews are a tribe. We're an indigenous people. 
Right. We come in many different colors and sizes and we've we've come from all different parts of the world and we don't fit into a binary of of black person versus white person. So in my in my view I think a lot of people who are afraid to have this conversation of just especially white functioning Jews have just pressed the panic button or maybe even not consciously realized they've done that and said and fully accepted white guilt when something that I've been saying a lot recently is why would you choose white guilt over Jewish pride you know this is your heritage this is who you are you're a Jewish person and you may have light skin but you're not part of the history of the white man in America that's not your history your history is that of the Jewish people you know my my kings and queens are, are you know are David and Solomon and it, I, I, I'm a I'm a Scottish person and great I totally accept that I grew up in a country where Henry VIII was once king but he wasn't my king I don't quite share that history and I've always enjoyed the duality of, as I said before, existing in a, in a secular culture, in a country that has granted my family a lot of wonderful things, a place that was a safe haven for my great-grandfather to escape from the Russian Tsar to and, and build a new life. But it, it's not ultimately where my roots come from, you know? Right. Exactly. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, if you sent that to me as a WhatsApp me- message, I send you like 10 rows of fire emojis. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Love it. That's lava what you just said. It's lava and it's the realest thing. And you know what? I'm thinking about it like, you know, I've been asked in a lot of different groups like about the discussion of, you know, uh, well, you know, if you're black, then then you'll just be a rapper or you'll be some something in the entertainment or you play basketball, you play football or whatever. And that's all you really think you could do. We need to do this and this and this and that. Or if you're Jewish, oh, you'll just be a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I say like this, I'm going to tie this back in, but I think that there's a God who created many different type of people and some people are talented. He gave certain gifts to certain nations, I would say. Uh, not every single person is good at, you know, at basketball because because of the color of the skin. But if you're saying that the general population of African-Americans either have a, a great love or desire for the game of basketball or, or football, there's some type of sport or being involved in, in, in the arts in their form, what's wrong with celebrating that and being happy about that, right? So when we talk about the conversation and we're bringing back in the, the conversation about anti-Semitism versus, you know, um, the race co- conversation or, you know, like we said, the LGBT communities, whatever, they are this serious question comes in is like okay if there's a pr problem it's sort of like how do we really spin the story to match what's really going on inside the jewish world we may not be able to talk about a victimhood because just by the pure nature of a jew we we don't fall into that that's not something that that we do everything is about going out from egypt we don't sit around and talk about how how to make it in this mitzrayim no we're we're going out the whole thing is to get out from Egypt. That's the conversation for us to have is talk about resilience. I've been asked 
many times. What can the African-American community take from the Jewish community? Is this everything that's going on right now in America from the censoring, the canceling, the the oppression, everything else, the <laughs> what I call right now, you know, with all this and that is these are, there's a lot of experiments going on right now uh, with COVID and everything else. Unfortunately, the Jewish world has lived that and had to experience that for years under, you know, hateful regimes and different things like that. And being able to come out and be as resilient and have the effect on culture uh, from everything from entertainment, commerce, the way that we have as a people today, that's a story to be able to tell. You know what I'm saying? Taking victimhood and turning it into victory. And I feel like that is the story that everybody wants to talk about. Biggie used to have a line. He used to say, you know, I went from ashy to classy. And that is the Jewish story. And being able to bring that to the conversation, I think, is a little bit more, a little bit more fitting. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think the problem that we have as Jews and that we've always had is that when we gloat about our accomplishments too much, people begin to resent us. We're in this constant sort of push-pull between, you know, the anti-Semite is obsessed with us. He's either obsessed with how successful we are or obsessed with how disgusting we are. And we're always caught between these two, these two things. Anti-Semitism is such a different form of prejudice for people to try and get their heads around. And I think a lot of the time it's very difficult because it's so deeply rooted in these conspiracy theories and these fantasies that are really enjoyable, actually, for the anti-Semite to engage in and allows them to project all of their own responsibilities onto Jews because it's the Jews' fault. But what you say about feeling proud of our accomplishments and about how our focus is on coming out of Mitzrayim and not sitting in it and thinking about how badly we were done by, you know, Pesach has always been my favourite festival. And I love how, you know, we spend a Seder night talking about the bitterness of our tears and our people and and the cement that we had to build and we eat a representation of it but at the end of the day we're leaning we're drinking four cups of wine we're having a good time we're eating like kings and queens and it's a joyous event where we're singing at the same time as you know we always have that joke that every Jewish festival essentially is you know they tried to kill us they didn't manage let's eat and that's what we do and it's always a celebration and a joy a perseverance for joy through real struggle and hard times. And that's been our entire history. And the resilience of the Jewish people is absolutely staggering. When you were talking there, you reminded me of that incredible story of the freedom writers in the 1990s. And I think it was a school in Long Beach in California where a teacher at a poorly funded high school that was majority African-American students who were all, you know, where the incarceration rate was atrocious, you know, barely any kid graduated from this high school. And she introduced, she was a, she was a white lady who introduced Holocaust education to her English literature class, I think, and was teaching them 
Anne Frank's diary and then some other literature from the Holocaust and took them on a field trip to the to whichever Holocaust museum was nearby in Long Beach and essentially empowered these African-American students with the story of survivors from the Holocaust and how this bridged the Jewish community and the African-American community together as, you know, it's not the same story and it's not the same oppression, but there was something deeply inspiring and empowering about Anne Frank's story for these kids. And they wound up flying one of the, you know, remaining Holocaust survivors over from Europe to visit this class of high schoolers because they they had become so so inspired by this story and started to get really good grades because they were motivated to stay in school and graduate. I think at the time it was quite a famous story and they made a move a Hollywood movie out of it and it's been sort of this beautiful example of cultures being able to be inspired by one another despite their differences. That's amazing. That's amazing. I have one last question, and I think it's appropriate for you because you are a, a professional observer of culture. But as someone who has rung the alarm on anti-Semitism and a host of other social issues, how alarmed do you think that we should be right now about anti-Semitism? <laughs> uh, well, not to scare anyone, but... I think we should be pretty alarmed. I think now is the time for organizing. I'm not in the business of fighting anti-Semitism, which might seem really strange to you as a thing for me who's online all day. Um, But I really am not in the business of fighting anti-Semites or anti-Semitism because I know from my education that anti-Semitism will never die. It is the, the oldest hatred in the world too because it's institutionalized. And really what I would say in answer to your question is that we should be alarmed, but we should also take this moment to empower our own, empower our own community and learn and educate ourselves and arm ourselves with the knowledge of our story, our people, our one nation that exists to protect us. Right. And really go back to our roots and really find out why it is that we have to start advocating for ourselves in the spaces that that we deserve to be in because we've become such a part of them. I think I, I feel so bad for younger Jewish people who feel as though they don't have the right to speak up for themselves in especially their progressive circles, because those are circles that exist because of as many other people, but also because of Jewish people people who helped to create those circles and for just as much of the reasons that they exist now because they've acquired justice and they required protection and these have become incredible secular spaces but it's a real stain on the existence of those spaces that they can't accommodate Jewish pride and Jewish advocacy so right. I do think we need to be very concerned but I, I also think that we need to look at it as possible positively as we can and to not let our fear override our desire to come together and do something about it. That is amazing. Be amazing, Eve Barlow. I really appreciate you coming on the show and we somehow in some way will continue this conversation. Maybe when I stop through LA, but I really appreciate your time. Really do. I would love that. I appreciate you asking me and um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Wow, you talk about an enlightening, an impactful conversation. I think I just had it with Eve. I mean, she dropped the mic, and she deserves every single um, fire emoji, you know, that one can send her. I mean, for real. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is when she said that although she was Scottish-born, and although, you know, there was a king in that country, her king is King David. And no matter if there was a king or queen ever in Scotland, the queen in her history is Queen Esther. And I feel like with all these identity politics and all these, these race conversations and anti-Semitism and everything else that's flying right now, is that it's important for the Jewish people to realize is that the horizontal arguments that have everything to do with what's going on down here, this first that, and I'm not saying we don't have to be in the world, very much so, we're supposed to be in the world, we're supposed to be elevating the world, but that's the thing, it's elevating it. We're supposed to bring down that vertical relationship from up above down to this earth, and that's our genius. Just like a fish, if you take a fish out of water and you look at the fish, the fish will choke, it will die. It, it will look as if, what's its purpose? What is the purpose of this fish? But if you put that fish inside of water, then you'll see it's genius. Any Jew, when we step outside of bringing down our vertical relationship into this world and elevating this world, what we're put here to do, then we don't show our genius. And I feel like being connected to who our kings were and who our queens were will ultimately help the world in a major way, more than what we know. With that said, I love to leave you guys with a song um, that makes me feel some type of way, you know, after I had that conversation. So the appropriate song I feel like for this conversation is none other than the Hava song, my rendition of Hava Nagila. And until next time, please be strong and only go from strength to strength.
for the So I'ma win cause he rigged it no All of it's predicted yeah. I ghost ride the whip and then whipped it Speeding on them, no tickets yeah. God touched me so I'm gifted yeah. I got plans to make a dance I came here to make a move I know it feels familiar But this a brand new groove Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. It's a production of the Joshua Network. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's Man. <laughs> The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.